This is the Music Halls of Fame podcast. This week we honor the year in music for 2014, along with a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 2014. We also make the case for putting Steve Winwood into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Plus, our Spotlight Hall of Fame is the Blues Museum Hall of Fame in Memphis, Tennessee. Before we get going with the podcast, like everyone tells you, please like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell so you'll know when these podcast episodes drop, which is usually every Thursday. Now, on to this week's episode. The year was 2014. In music, the band U2 gave everyone their new album, Songs of Innocence, for free on iTunes. Unfortunately, a lot of people didn't like the fact that it was automatically uploaded to their iTunes account without their permission. Taylor Swift went up against Spotify concerning artists getting paid more on the platform. 50 Cent threw up a ceremonial pitch at a baseball game that was just a bit outside to his extreme embarrassment. It was actually 20 feet off of home plate. It was that bad. Apple bought Dr. Dre's Beats by Dre company. Motley Crue signed a letter of intent to never tour again after 2015. That didn't take. They went back out on tour after COVID lockdowns were lifted and concert tours restarted in 2022. Renee Fleming became the first opera singer to perform the national anthem at the Super Bowl, and Christine McVie rejoined Fleetwood Mac. Bands that formed in 2014 included Cheat Codes, Sophie Tucker, Minx, Lip Service, Red Velvet, Stereo Kicks, Melody Day, and Missio. Bands that either broke up or announced their hiatus included the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, The Wanted, The Allman Brothers Band, The Beastie Boys, Jethro Tull, LFO, Danity Kane, Pink Floyd, Rob Bass and DJ Easy Rock, and Slaughterhouse. Bands that got back together in 2014 included Metro Station, L7, Luna, Breaking Benjamin, Basement, Deep Dish, and Outkast. Taylor Swift released her first official pop album, 1989, which was the biggest selling album of 2014, and eventually won the Grammy Award in 2015 for Best Album. It wasn't eligible for 2014's Grammys because it was released in late October, which was a month past the 2014 Grammy Award nominations deadline. Other big albums of the year were by Ed Sheeran, Coldplay, Sam Smith, One Direction, Pentatonix, Beyonce, Barbara Streisand, ACDC, Pink Floyd, Lord, Sia, Beck, Pharrell Williams, and both the Frozen and Guardians of the Galaxy soundtracks. Singles-wise, 2014 was also the year of Eminem's Monster with Rihanna, Iggy Azalea's Fancy, Pitbull and Kesha's Timber, Katy Perry's Dark Horse, Pharrell's Happy, John Legend's All of Me, Jason Derulo's Talk Dirty, Idina Menzel's Let It Go, Christina Aguilera's Say Something, Sam Smith's Latch, and also Stay With Me, Sia's Chandelier, Nicki Minaj's Anaconda, Taylor Swift's Shake It Off, 
DJ Snake and Lil John's Turn Down For What, and Megan Trainer's All About That Bass, No Treble. Mark Ronson and Bruno Mars, by the way, released Uptown Funk late in 2014, but it didn't become a big hit until 2015. In country music, it was the year of coming out and also health concerns. Artists Ty Herndon and Billy Gilman both came out as gay on November 20th, while songwriter Dick Feller came out as a transgender woman. Meanwhile, Trace Atkins entered rehab for alcoholism, while Glenn Campbell entered a care facility to take care of him in his final years of his battle with Alzheimer's disease. George Strait retired from performing after setting the record for the largest indoor concert in American history with over 105,000 of his closest friends in Texas. The best-selling country song of the year was Burnin' It Down by Jason Aldean. Other best-selling country songs were by Luke Bryan, Carrie Underwood, Florida Georgia Line, Tim McGraw, Brantley Gilbert, Miranda Lambert, and Cole Swindell. The top-selling country album was Luke Bryan's Crash My Party. The other top-selling albums of the year were released by Florida Georgia Line, Eric Church, Jason Aldean, Brantley Gilbert, Miranda Lambert, Blake Shelton, Garth Brooks, and Cole Swindell again. In dance music, the charts had less to do with the pop and R&B crossover artists like in years past as the EDM revolution was in full swing by then. And while Iggy Azalea, Nicki Minaj, and Sam Smith had big selling dance songs, it was actually Clean Bandit's Rather Be that was the biggest selling dance track of the year. Other big singles were Sigma's Changing, Dubs's Tsunami, Calvin Harris's Summer, Tiesto's Wasted, OMI's Cheerleader, David Guetta's Hey Mama, Avicii's The Night, Fuse ODG's Dangerous Love, and Klingan's Jubal. In hip-hop, Iggy Azalea ruled the year as her song with Charlie XCX, Fancy, was the biggest song of the year. Other hits were by DJ Snake and Lil Jon, Nicki Minaj, Bobby Shmurda, Will I Am, Pitbull, Crow, Flo Rida, and Jeremy NYG. As far as albums went, the biggest ones were released by J. Cole, Nicki Minaj, Rick Ross, Colega, Schoolboy Q, Young Jeezy, Pharrell, Wiz Khalifa, Lecrae, and a Shady Records compilation. In Latin music, Romeo was the biggest artist of the year. Other big-selling Latin artists were Enrique Iglesias, Mark Anthony, Jenny Rivera, Santana, Gerardo Ortiz, Prince Royce, and Marco Antonio Solis. Lead singer Dave Brocky of Guar passed away from an opioid drug overdose as the world had yet to officially grasp the dangers of opioids. That would come a few years later when Prince and Tom Petty became two of the most famous casualties of opioid addiction. Other musical artists who passed away in 2014 included radio DJ Casey Kasem, DJ Frankie Knuckles, pianist Joe Sample, Bobby Womack, jazz pianist Horace Silver, Tommy Ramone of the Ramones, jazz clarinetist Buddy DeFranco, Johnny Winter, Jack Bruce of Cream, Joe Cocker, Phil Everly of the Everly Brothers, and folk legend Pete Seeger. 
At the Grammy Awards, Beck won Album of the Year for Morning Phase. Sam Smith won Record of the Year for Stay With Me. Pharrell won Song of the Year for Happy. And Sam Smith also won Best New Artist. At the American Music Awards, One Direction won Artist of the Year. At the Billboard Music Awards, Taylor Swift won Top Artist. And at the MTV Video Music Awards, Video of the Year went to Miley Cyrus for Wrecking Ball. At the Eurovision Singing Contest, which was held that year in Copenhagen, Denmark, it was actually Austria that won Song of the Year for Rise Like a Phoenix. At the Tony Awards, A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder won Best Musical, and Hedwig and the Angry Itch won Best Revival of a Musical. The Pulitzer Prize for Music went to John Luther Adams for Become Ocean, John Adams for The Gospel According to the Other Mary, and Christopher Cerrone for Invisible Cities. Musically, at the Academy Awards, Alexandra Desplat won Best Original Score for The Grand Budapest Hotel, while Common and John Legend won Best Song for Glory from the movie Selma. In 2014, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony was held on April 10th in Brooklyn, New York at the Barclays Center. During the ceremony, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inducted the E Street Band into the hall for the Award for Musical Excellence category. In the performance category, the hall inducted Peter Gabriel, Hall & Oates, Kiss, Nirvana, Linda Ronstan, and Cat Stevens. In the non-performers category, Record producer Andrew Luke Oldman was inducted into the non-performers Amit Erdogan Award category, although Oldman refused to attend the ceremony because he thought that it was a slap in the face to him that he was also inducted with someone else in the category, let alone with this next person. Brian Epstein was born on September 19, 1934, in Liverpool, England. His family ran a number of successful retail stores and made him the manager of his family's record store back in the early 1960s in Liverpool. He heard about a band called The Beatles from a couple of guys who came into the store and asked for Beatles records. Legend has it that during a lunch break from the store, he decided one day to walk over a few blocks to the Cavern Club to hear the Beatles play. At the time, the Beatles were trying to manage themselves, and any musician these days will tell you that even with the internet and social media, that is a pretty daunting task. So imagine how tough it was back in the 1960s. Brian thought that even though he had never really managed a band before, he did have some good business sense. He convinced the band, then at the time with Pete Best on drums, to let him manage them for 25% of the band's gross earnings. The contract was for five years. That 25%, by the way, is a lot for a manager to take, but consider that without Brian, the Beatles might have been stuck forever in Liverpool as just another local band that didn't live up to its full potential. For starters, even though Brian didn't know much about managing, he was really good at marketing and branding. It was Brian who gave the Beatles their image. He got them to dress in suits instead of the leather outfits they normally had. Bowing together after each song? Brian's idea. Brian got them their first record contract. After that, they were off and running. 
Brian also came up with the idea of the band doing multiple nights on the Ed Sullivan Show, followed by a quick promotional tour in America instead of the one night that Ed Sullivan originally wanted. So, from a marketing and branding viewpoint, Brian was a genius. As great as Brian was at those things, there were three major problems that he encountered during his tenure as manager of the Beatles. The first one was that Brian didn't quite see the overall big picture when it came to merchandising, as he signed away 90% of the merchandising rights for the band before the band became popular in America. That cost the Beatles a ton of money. As everyone found out 15 years later when George Lucas famously kept his merchandising rights in order to finish his movie Star Wars, merchandising is where creatives can make a huge amount of money. Lucas figured it out and he built the bulk of his fortune off of it. Epstein didn't quite have that whole big picture thinking when it came to that and it led to problems down the road. The second big problem with this whole deal was when it came to publishing rights, which was either another example of a lack of big picture forward thinking or another example of how managers and record executives screw over their talent. It depends on how you look at it, I suppose. For those wondering how John Lennon and Paul McCartney didn't own the rights to their songs, pay attention. Back in 1963, Brian convinced the guys to start a publishing arm called Northern Songs. The company was mainly owned by two guys named Dick James and Charles Silver, who had 51% of the company. Remember, this company was formed to take care of the rights to the songs that John and Paul wrote. You would have thought that they would at least be majority owners. In actuality, they only owned 20% of the company each. They then had their own company, Northern Songs, with their song rights along with it, sold out from under them by Dick James and Charles Silver. Lesson learned, always be majority owners in whatever creative endeavors you're doing, kids. Also, own your own master tapes. Taylor Swift found that one out the hard way. Just a little lesson for you. From those aspects, Brian wasn't really good for the band. However, he was the glue that kept the band together. That glue, unfortunately, began to fall apart in 1967, which is what led to the third and final problem with Brian. Brian had a history of insomnia, and he was taking prescription pills to help get over it. I know. Tale as old as time, and you probably already know where this is heading, especially if you know history. Around the time of his death, he had just gotten out of a clinic where he was trying to get help for his insomnia and addiction to pain medication. He was supposed to be entertaining some guests that night outside of London at his country home, but they didn't show up until after he had left his country home. He drove back to London drank some alcohol, and took six pills of Carbitrol in order to help him get some sleep. The combination of alcohol and Carbitrol was what killed him. Never, ever mix alcohol with prescription drugs. Never, ever, ever. Brian Epstein was found dead by his butler on August 27, 1967. He was one month away from his 33rd 
birthday. A lot of people believe that it was after that time that the writing was on the wall for the Beatles to split up. They didn't know how to take care of the business end of things. That was Brian's job. Brian was also the band referee. Without him, there really wasn't anyone there to do it. Although their longtime iconic producer, Sir George Martin, tried. Oh, how he tried. In the end, the fight, Yoko Ono, it all became a mess, and the Beatles finally imploded and called it quits. The beginning of the end, as some people say, was when Brian passed away from an accidental drug overdose on August 27, 1967. Brian was presented for induction by record producer and musician Peter Asher of the duo Peter and Gordon, whose connection to Brian was through Peter's sister Jane, who dated Paul McCartney before Paul met Linda McCartney. Presented for induction by Peter Asher of Peter and Gordon, Brian Epstein inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a non-performer in the Amit Erdogan Award category in 2014. Before we get to the rest of the podcast, we'd like to tell you about our other podcast, the Music History Today podcast. Every day we tell you what happened on that date in music history along with music releases, birthdays, and passings. So, if you like this podcast and want more music history, then please search the Music History Today podcast in audio or video form on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast from. This week, we're going to look at the case for putting Steve Winwood into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Now, Steve is a legend in the rock world, having been a part of four legendary bands, the Spencer Davis Group, Traffic, Go, and Blind Faith. As legendary as all those bands were, only Traffic is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, so Steve is already inducted as part of that group. But let's talk about the case for putting him in as a solo artist. Although he has nine solo albums, his second through sixth ones are the meat of his career and the ones that gave him his greatest solo success. Those albums all hit the top 40 in America. Even his self-titled first album went top 40, although there weren't any singles that were popular during its initial run. Three of those albums, Ark of a Diver, Back in the High Life, and Roll With It, all hit the top five, with Roll With It actually hitting number one. His compilation album, Chronicles, which is what I personally recommend if you want to get your feet wet with him, went top 30. Singles-wise, Steve did extremely well in the 1980s. He had 19 top 40 songs in America. Out of those, 11 went top 10 and 4 went to number 1. Steve's had hits like Ark of a Diver, Higher Love, Valerie, Roll With It, Back in the High Life, Wake Me Up on Judgment Day, Help Me Angel, While You See a Chance, and The Finer Things. He won two Grammy Awards and countless other awards. His songs have been covered by numerous artists, especially in EDM. Eric Prids, for instance, used the song Valerie for his song Call On Me. Steve even re-recorded the vocals for Prids's version. 
Higher Love, which was Steve's number one Grammy Award-winning smash hit with Shaka Khan, is now a number one smash hit for Kigo, with the late great Whitney Houston doing the vocals on that one. Steve's mixing of blues, soul, pop, jazz, and rock music have also influenced generations of artists from Eric Clapton and Santana to Coldplay and John Mayer. As far as Steve's chances for the hall go, he was nominated back in 2003, but didn't make the final cut at that time. That is a shame, considering his track record, and especially when you consider that he's also one of the most respected songwriters in the business, even to this day. Steve Winwood, to me, deserves to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and this time as a solo artist. Back in 1980, the Blues Foundation decided to start inducting blues artists into its foundation's Hall of Fame wing. Much like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they inducted members long before they had a physical building. That changed when the Blues Hall of Fame Museum opened in 2015. The museum is located in Memphis, Tennessee and has become one of Memphis's biggest tourist attractions, getting over 100,000 visitors a year. It is located less than two blocks away from the National Civil Rights Museum, which is what used to be the Lorraine Motel. The Lorraine Motel is famous for being the spot where Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated in 1968. The museum itself has 10 galleries, and as far as museums go these days, it's pretty updated with modern technology. There's, for instance, interactive touchscreen displays and databases, unlike a lot of museums where their button displays never seem to work. We've all been to those museums, unfortunately. Its archives house over 5,000 artifacts, including instruments, sheet music, recordings, and photographs. Some of their exhibits have focused on blues music in Memphis, Tennessee, and also in popular culture. The museum is open Monday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., and Sundays from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. Admission is $10 for adults and $8 for students, which is extremely cheap for a museum these days. Museum members and children 12 and under, by the way, go in for free. Blues.org backslash Hall of Fame Museum is its main website, and we will throw that link in the show notes since it's rather tricky because there's hyphens in there, like all through that whole link, by the way. Charles Brown was born in Texas City, Texas on September 13, 1922. While he was a kid, he started playing piano, and by the time he was a teenager, he was playing professionally in nightclubs. He graduated from Prairie View A&M College in Texas with a chemistry degree in 1942 and bounced around doing different jobs in Texas, including one as a chemistry teacher, proving that that degree at least was not a complete waste. In 1943, Charles decided to move to Los Angeles, California, and it was there where his music career became his life's work. A year after he moved to L.A. in 1944, he joined Johnny Moore's Three Blazers, who were a very popular group on the West Coast and who were signed to Exclusive Records. 
The group had a few hits, including Driftin' Blues. After only two years with the Three Blazers, Charles signed with Aladdin Records as a solo artist. During his solo career, he had hits like Trouble Blues, Black Knight, and I'll Be Home for Christmas, along with seven top ten hits on Billboard's R&B chart. His smooth singing, along with his use of the piano, made him one of the most influential blues men of the 1940s and 50s. As the blues faded from the musical landscape and turned into blues rock and roll in the 1960s, Charles's popularity started to wane. He still continued recording and touring for the next 40 years, going on tour with artists like Linda Ronstan and Bonnie Raitt. On January 21, 1999, Charles passed away from congestive heart failure at the age of 76. He had kept touring almost right up to the day he passed away. Charles Brown influenced Floyd Dixon, Ivory Joe Hunter, and a host of others with the quieter version of the blues in the 1940s and 50s. He had his songs covered by artists like John Lee Hooker and his Christmas classics, Merry Christmas Baby and Please Come Home for Christmas, have been covered numerous times over the years. Charles released over 20 albums and 80 singles in his career. He was nominated for three Grammy Awards. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1999 and was a recipient of a 1997 National Heritage Fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts. He is the man who also quite possibly made my favorite Christmas album of all time, a Charles Brown Christmas, which I highly recommend if you like Christmas music but don't like all the sugary Christmas music. It is a strictly blues album and it is epic. Charles Brown, inducted into the Blues Museum Hall of Fame in Memphis, Tennessee in 1996. And that is it for this episode of the Music Halls of Fame podcast. For more podcast episodes, which drop every Thursday in audio and video form, then please like, subscribe, and click the notification bell on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast from. <laughs> <laughs>